0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author-in-the-Room conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later we will conduct a question-and-answer session. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you. Greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program
1: sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps can, that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today is no exception to that. We're really delighted uh, to have both Dr. Um, Manina Clevins and Dr. John uh, Jernigan on the call to uh, present and ask uh, to answer your questions uh, for the article, which is "Invasive Methicillin-Resistant Staphylococcus Aureus Infections in the United States," published in the October Seventeenth, Two Thousand and Seven JAMA. Just as a reminder, uh, author in the room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and the next call will be on December 19th. Uh, Just for your information, that call will be on an article published in today's JAMA titled Using Pedometers to Increase Physical Activity and Improve Health, a systemic review by lead author Dr. Dina uh, Bravada, and we're really delighted to have that. I would like to actually take a just a minute to thank Dr. Margaret Winker as well, who is Deputy Editor of JAMA. It is Dr. Winker's uh, job to choose the articles that we discuss in author in the room, and uh, for those who participate regularly, you know she does just a fantastic job of choosing articles that really lead to some interesting and, uh, and robust conversation that has a lot of implications for clinical practice. So, thank you, Dr. Dr. Winker. Uh, today, again, our featured article is on invasive methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is very much in the news today, mostly because of the article uh, published by Dr. Clevins and colleagues. Uh, Dr. Clevins is at the CDC, and she is an, epidemi- uh, an Epidemic Intelligence Service EIS officer. She's been there since 1991. And Dr. Clevins is a principal investigator for a multi-state project to measure methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus in the population, which is uh, the nidus for the article of discussion today. Um, She is joined today by Dr. John Jernigan, uh, who is the Deputy Branch Chief of the Prevention and Response Branch in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He is also Assistant Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases. So we appreciate both uh, Dr. Clevins and Dr. Uh, Jernigan being with us today. Welcome. Uh, As moderator of the call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of the research findings Uh, into clinical practice with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. We know that there is a tremendous amount of interest in this particular topic. uh, The uh, reduction in the spread of invasive methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. Uh, Together, we'll help you to translate some of what's in this paper into clinical practice, and we're delighted to see a very large number of people sign up for the call today. In fact, one of The call-in numbers is actually from an auditorium where there's a whole auditorium of folks uh, calling in, so we look forward to getting to your questions relatively quickly. Here's how the au- the hour will proceed. Uh, first, Dr. Clevens will have about a 10-minute summary of the article uh, summarizing uh, the findings of the study, and then Dr. Uh, Jernigan will take about five minutes to provide a greater context for the prevention of uh, MRSA spread in the community. So we'll have uh, both of them present. That will take about 15 minutes, and then we'll move pretty quickly on to your calls. There are about 150 uh, lines called in, uh, so there are a lot of uh, people out there. We encourage you to bring your both comments and questions to the call, and when we move to the Q&A session, uh, Derek, the conference call operator, will give you instructions as to how to get in the queue. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites, in a podcast, so should you choose to get them, or past author-in-the-room calls, you can go there and look under the program section of IHI.org uh, as an example. Um, members of the press may be present on a background basis only, uh, and at that, then we will turn to uh, Dr. Clevins first to uh, give a summary of the article. Greetings, Dr. Clevins.
2: Thank you very much, and I also want to thank all the participants, especially today. I know everybody has a lot of things that they want to be doing, so thank you very much for your interest. I also want to start a little bit with some context, because before we even got to the study, um, we knew that there were concerns about community-associated MRSA, so even though the story sort of ends at this point at the healthcare being the larger group, it wasn't at all to dismiss the community-associated. And as a matter of fact, it started based on outbreaks in the 90s of populations that had no contact with a healthcare system traditionally. And that raised an interest to determine, well, how frequent is community-associated MRSA in the population? So then there was a study, sort of the, the pilot phase, Um, for this larger um, project, which was to measure community-associated MRSA and characterize it. And the way that started was from laboratory reports from any body site, there was follow-up to rule out cases that had any documentation of risk factors. And if that was unclear, Um, then they would put them in a category of a probable case. Then all of the cases were followed up, those either uh, uh, in the probable uh, community associated with an interview to then confirm whether it was a community associated case. But to give you a sense of how large that endeavor is, From the three communities that participated in that pilot, um, there were about 12,500 cases that were found. About 79% of them were healthcare-associated, and so that left about 2,100 either confirmed or probable community-associated MRSA cases from any body site. And there's a very nice description in that paper. That paper is Fridkin et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, 2005, and it was really very nicely descriptive of the community-associated cases, not only sort of in the clinical characteristics, but description of susceptibilities. And so the finding there, I think, that is useful that led into this next component was that most of those community cases, 77% were infections of the skin and soft tissue. 6% were actually invasive, And so you can imagine when everyone got together and looked at the daunting task that it would be to expand that, that there was agreement that the only feasible way for public health to conduct surveillance in this area was to focus on the most severe of infections that were those that were invasive. And there was actually great infrastructure to be able to expand that because um, the ABCs, which is the active bacterial core surveillance system, um, already had a population under surveillance of about 38 million people in the U.S. across different sites, and they've been conducting surveillance for invasive infections with other organisms, like, for example, um, Group A and Group B Streptococcus, um, Haemophilus Influenza, Streptococcus pneumoniae. you know, other ones, so MRSA was easily added to that and um so sort of that brings us to our study. So the methods for our study were using the infrastructure of the ABCs when there was a laboratory report of a uh, culture positive for MRSA from a previously sterile site, then at each of each one of these nine uh, program areas in the US, staff would go to follow up on these cases to determine whether they had previously been reported and to collect information on basic demographics and clinical characteristics. The key, I think, for classification that that we need to expand a little bit upon that they were looking for in uh, medical records was the presence of risk factors. And so I want to just uh, tell everyone what those risk factors were that we used to classify cases. First, either a history in the previous 12 months of surgery, hospitalization, dialysis, residence in a long-term care community, or uh, infection or colonization with MRSA. The other was presence of an invasive device at the time of evaluation. And then based on those risk factors, um, cases were classified into three groups. One, if they had none of those risk factors, we classified them as community associated. If they had the culture collected beyond 48 hours of hospital admission, we called that hospital onset. And then if they had community onset but had a healthcare risk factor, we called that group um, healthcare associated with community onset. So um, logistically then each of those EIP sites send data on a monthly basis to CDC, and for the report from 2005, we used data for descriptive purposes from July 2004 through December 2005, and then for calculations of incidence, we used just January to December 2005 and excluded the 13% of cases that were reported with recurrent infections. Key findings from our analysis were, first of all, that based on age, race, and sex-adjusted rates, the projections to the U.S. were of about 94,000 invasive infections and 18,600 deaths among people with invasive MRSA. So our first sort of conclusion was that this is actually an important public health problem and we need to continue to monitor this. Um, You know, then I guess the second is that, and I I won't read to you what's in table four, but to summarize what's there is that um, the rates were highest for cases with healthcare risk factors but with community onset. And in the descriptive characteristics, 58% of all the cases were in that classification and that represented a rate of about 18 per 100,000. Then the second largest group was um, hospital onset, and that was of about 27% of cases and a rate of nine per 100,000. And then third, a smaller group, were the community associated that represented about 14% of all of the cases and yielded a rate of five per 100,000. The rates of mortality, in-hospital crude mortality, was, um, followed actually a similar pattern to that, um, and that really leads us sort of to our second important message, which is that most of these are healthcare-associated, and so we need to prioritize prevention of MRSA in healthcare settings. One thing I wanted to clarify is that really the press coverage around the publication made the community-associated infections look like they were associated with the total number of deaths that we reported, and I think that caused some alarm. Um, It coincided in the news with the death of a teenager and some school closings, and I think that really misled a lot of the public. Um But, so, based on what I mentioned sort of was the pilot for this larger surveillance project, we know that community associated infections, I think you're you know a lot of people, your patients are going to be asking that that most of those are associated with skin and soft tissue infections, and based on our findings, mortality in people with um, cellulitis or skin and soft tissue infections in addition to invasive MRSA was lower than with some of the other um, uh, syndromes like pneumonia or bacteremia. Um, So I think that's all I have to say. So now um, I'll I'll pass the, the floor to John Jernigan who will give you a brief overview of how to prevent MRSA in healthcare settings.
3: Thanks, Monina. Um, And I would like to review just briefly um, and in a general way sort of CDC's recommendations about prevention of of MRSA um, in the healthcare setting. Um, I won't focus much in these comments on uh, prevention of MRSA in the community setting, although we'll be happy happy to entertain questions about that if there are some from the audience. The, the data that Monina just reviewed suggests, uh, obviously, that MRSA is an important cause of infection um, in association with healthcare. And we think that it's an important call to action, and, and we think it illustrates the, the, the need for healthcare facilities to do more uh, to control this and other drug-resistant pathogens in the healthcare setting. In fact, we think that prevention and control of these infections uh, should be considered a national priority and one that requires all healthcare facilities and agencies to assume uh, some re- level of responsibility. Uh, <clears throat> CDC issued guidance on management of uh, methicillin resistant staph aureus and other multidrug-resistant infections uh, last year in 2006 in a document called Management of uh, Multidrug-resistant Organisms in Healthcare Facilities, uh, and this can be found on the CDC website at www.cdc.gov, and I would encourage you all to to review that. One of the, you know, big overviews uh, of that is is that there's not a silver bullet approach to to this problem. But but in fact, hospitals and other healthcare facilities need to implement comprehensive and multifaceted programs to address this and other multidrug resistant organisms. And that the administration uh, of these organizations and institutions should ensure that the appropriate strategies are fully implemented, regularly evaluated for effectiveness, and in fact adjusted uh, if, if they're not having the desired impact. I think uh, if there's any takeaway from this, I think I would say that successful prevention and control of MRSA and other multidrug resistant organisms requires administrative and scientific leadership and a financial and human resource commitment to do so. Now, the guidance uh, document it gives recommendations for healthcare facilities across seven different domains and one is, is, is an important one, perhaps the most important one that I just mentioned, and that is recommendations on administrative engagement and support for these types of programs. There are recommendations on education and training, uh, recommendations on uh, improving the judicious use of antimicrobial agents, which uh, should be uh, one of the cornerstones of any program to prevent antimicrobial resistance. There are specific recommendations on infection control precautions. Um, We'll go over some of those in a moment. Um, Recommendations on uh, environmental measures, recommendations on when and when not to use uh, decolonization strategies to uh, attempt to decolonize or suppress colonization in patients who may be infected or colonized with MRSA. And then finally, and perhaps uh, again another very important one, is is surveillance. and that involves measuring the impact of your program, and, in fact, if the program is not having the desired effect to change your program in such a way until you do actually um, achieve and, and document control of this problem. Um, the, the document is written from the premise that that not any single size will fit each and every healthcare facility in terms of their uh, control program. Um, and in fact, there, the document is um, outlines a two-tiered approach. There's a first tier that consists of general recommendations that should be considered in each and every healthcare facility, regardless of, of the magnitude or status of their MRSA or MDRO problem in their hospital. Um, and then there is a second tier of more intensified recommendations uh, that's designed to be uh, implemented in the case that. Uh, first tier recommendations are not resulting in control uh, of the problem in a, in a given hospital. And, and the trigger, uh, of course, um, keys off the measurement, the surveillance system. So hospitals have to have a, a, a rigorous measurement system in place to know where they are with their problem and whether they're having an impact with their first tier approach. I'll also say that um, the document doesn't preclude hospitals going directly to the second tier. And in fact, in talking with healthcare facilities around the country, many, many hospitals have have looked at these recommendations and said, you know, look, we've been doing the first tier recommendations for some time, and in our facility, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to be effective, and so they've chosen to go directly to more intensified recommendations. Um, what are some of those more intensified recommendations? Well, for example, I won't go through them all but there might be recommendations on enhanced environmental measures to make sure that you're actually cleaning the environment better. There are maybe recommendations for cohorting of staff to care for uh, patients who are known to be infected or colonized with MRSA or other MDROs. Um, there's recommendations for use of the active surveillance cultures to identify uh, asymptomatic carriers of of MRSA such that contact precautions can be um, implemented. Um, There are also recommendations on uh, additional recommendations for intensifying the administrative engagement, for intensifying education and training, uh, for more detailed and more in-depth monitoring of trends, and also recommendations on uh, additional recommendations for optimizing the use of antimicrobial agents. The bottom line for these recommendations is that while although they are flexible, and uh, I like to say that they provide sort of a roadmap that can be customized for any given facility based upon their individual needs and patient populations. Um, uh, although they are flexible in this way, they are among the most demanding of the infection control guidance that's ever been issued uh, by the CDC because they ask for a documentable uh, documentable impact. They ask hospitals to measure what they're doing, and if, in fact, their programs are not having the desirable impact, which is defined as a decreasing endemic rates of MRSA and and other MDROs, then, in fact, your program needs to be altered until you are seeing that result. So, um, although flexible, the, the guidelines are very demanding, uh, and in summary, they... We think that the most effective programs are going to be multifaceted and take a very comprehensive approach to this problem and will have great overlap uh, with control programs designed to prevent other healthcare-associated infections, not just methicillin resistant staph aureus. Uh, and with that, I'll stop, and I suppose we can open it up to uh, questions.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Clevins, and doc- thank you, Dr. Jernigan, as well. I think that's right. I think uh, uh, we know that there are a lot of people on the call, and there's a lot of interest in the topic, so I think we should go ahead and move directly
0: to uh, calls. Derek, do you want to give people instructions for that? Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star, and then one under touchtone foam. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you're using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star, then one in your touchstone phone. Standing by for questions. Our first question is from Ajari Underwood from the Tree Rivers Community. Please go ahead.
1: Great. And, you know, sometimes the uh, those who register for the on the line that you called in is not the person asking the question because there's frequently several people per uh, per line out there. So if you just want to introduce yourself, your name, and, again, your organization, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. This is Marjorie Underwood from Three Rivers Community Hospital in Oregon. Um, I have a question. The CDC guidelines and Dr. Jernigan both spoke to the need to measure um the measure our MRSA, but what's really unclear in the literature is exactly what should be measured. Should we we be measuring nosocomial colonization, um, nosocomial um, infection? Should we only look at invasive infection? Um, and the def- so that's my first question. The second question is the def- what definition should be used? Um, there have been a lot of things tossed out about healthcare associated, healthcare associated, but community acquired. It's really unclear, and we really could use some guidance. Thanks.
3: Right. Um, Thank you for that question. It is an important question, and and I I will admit that the the CDC guidance is a little bit uh, unclear on exactly what the measure should be. And along that line, we actually are working on uh, an, an additional document that's going to be scheduled for publication, we hope, in early spring of 2008. Which uh, the working title is "Recommendations for Measurement of Multi-Drug Resistant Organisms in Healthcare Settings," and goes into some detail about exactly which measures a hospital may uh, may use in evaluating the impact of their infection control program. And it will be a com- there will be a combination of measures presented in that document. Obviously, measurement of infection rates is probably the most important thing because, after all, these programs are all designed to prevent. Uh, healthcare-associated infections. Um, the uh, the most of the current definitions are um, uh, designed to uh, measure infections that are attributable to a certain hospital stay. And as as the document that doc, Dr. Clevins' document and manuscript points out, many of these healthcare-associated infections occur after a patient leaves the hospital or. In settings where the patient may not even have been in the hospital and getting their healthcare somewhere else, we need to figure out a better way to measure these uh, and to try to attribute them to certain hospital or other healthcare uh, interactions, so that so that the appropriate prevention measures can can be applied. Um, so I think measuring the short answer to your question is, I think at the very basic level, measuring infection rates and using existing CDC definitions for for hospital-associated infections, what we traditionally have called nosocomial infections, is the sort of very minimum thing. Uh, and I encourage you to keep a lookout for this document to go into some details about additional measures that might be surrogates for transmission and colonization as well. And we uh, there are also some hint in that document of how to Look at infections that may manifest themselves after a patient leaves a healthcare facility. But we need more work and research in that area, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done.
2: Let me add this is Monina. Let me add that there's sort of another side to that, and that is outside of healthcare settings and the struggle with what to measure and how to conduct surveillance for MRSA um, overall, either population based or Sentinel sites. And this is something that health departments are struggling with right now. So I think, you know, we don't have, again, a solution for what they should measure exactly, what definitions. That's going to have to be based on what their needs are locally. What can you do with the data? How are they going to be implementing prevention? And then they'll work that out. But those discussions are going on right now.
1: Marjorie, great question. Thank you for that. And, uh, John, where will the measures be published?
3: Uh, right now, the targeted uh, journal is in Infection Control and, and Hospital Epidemiology and Healthcare Epidemiology. But okay, and they can always look on the uh, on the
1: CDC website for that as well. I'm assuming. Um, and when when do you think they'll be published? When approximately 2008?
3: Um, are in spring of of the coming year. Okay, great.
1: So not too far off into the future. Uh, so that's very important. Obviously, the measurement uh, is critical. Will the recommendations be primarily focused on hospitals or on non-hospital organ, you know, uh, epicenters as well, such as you know, nursing homes and extended care facilities?
3: These are going to be primarily focused on uh, acute care facilities, although some of the measures could be applied in the long-term care setting. Um, again, we need for health care settings beyond that, such as outpatient. We need additional work and, and, and research, I think, to come up with the proper measures for those types of settings. Great.
0: Great. Great. Okay. Super. Uh, Derek, next question. Our next question is from Terry Savino from Middlesex Hospital. Please go ahead. Terry, please go ahead. Terry, you may be on mute.
1: If not, we'll go to the next caller. Hello. There you are.
4: Yeah, thanks. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Goodwin from Middlesex hospital uh, along those same lines it uh you know if in the uh, in terms of proactive uh surveillance um if it turns out that uh, people start recommending or start actually doing surveillance to try and determine colonization rates of MRSA um, it would seem to me, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people have thought about this as well, number one, that's going to be an awful lot of work, an awful lot of money. Uh, number two, I think we have to have definitions um, provided to us uh, in terms of what, uh, what is the meaning of nosocomial colonization, for instance. How would you really know whether someone is colonized as a result of being in the hospital? How many surveillance cultures would you have to have negative going in? And how many surveillance cultures would you have to obtain uh, after that? Uh, How many days does it take to uh, become uh, colonized by MRSA? I mean, there's so many unknowns about this. It seems to me that I know intuitively it would make sense to try and determine the rates of nosocomial colonization, but it seems to me from my perspective right now that that's either gonna be extremely difficult or actually impossible. And so I'm, I'm wondering about uh, that as one question and the other in terms of active surveillance, you didn't mention uh, doing active surveillance on employees and healthcare workers and whether or not that would also become part of a two-tier um, uh, program. And, of course, that opens up a lot of other questions if you start just randomly culturing our healthcare care providers and what do we do with that information and uh, do we keep them out of work until they are decolonized and if so, how long do you have to wait until you're satisfactorily decolonized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, going back to the other doc's um, comments, I, I think infection rates would be kind of a reasonable way to start, and I'm not sure that we can go much
3: beyond that. Right. Well, thank you for the question. There, there are a lot of excellent points there and, and, and a number of questions. Let me take the first one uh, about... Surveillance. It seemed like the first part of your question was, you know, what to do about for s- surveillance for uh, acquisition of colonization in the healthcare setting. Right. And um, the, there. I, I think you're right. I think the, the the exact role for that precise measure is something that that remains to be determined. I think there are a number of of healthcare facilities out there who have opted to do this and have found that. Uh, helpful piece of information um, as, li- as limited as the definitions may be um, because it, 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 it could potentially render uh, an event that heretofore was invisible uh, visible to healthcare workers. If you have a patient who, who had a reasonable effort to, uh, for example, find out if they were a carrier of MRSA or another multidrug resistant organism when they came into your unit. But they left your unit carrying that organism, um, or, or you have evidence to suggest that they may have. Of course, it's hard to, you know, without molecular typing studies, et cetera, to, to determine that definitively. But, but that could be a marker uh, that's helpful to, to, to illustrate the fact that, look, we are transmitting organisms in, in this unit, and we need to do better with our prevention message, uh, methods. How to define a transmission is something that um, is, you know, there there will be surveillance definitions. There actually are surveillance definitions that exist, and that will be part, for example, of uh, a, a new module in our in CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network, which is a system for that allows surveillance for healthcare-associated infections. But there'll be a new module that allows for surveillance. Uh, uh, for multidrug-resistant organisms, both infection and colonization. And there will be a protocol in there, a surveillance protocol, that's, that defines very specifically how to define that. Is it perfect? No. There are surveillance definitions, and so there will probably be some false positives and false negatives in there, as there are with any surveillance system. However, um, some facilities may, may find it useful uh, in order to, to track how often this event does occur in their, in their, in their hospitals. Uh, I think again, there's more work to be done to improve those measures. One of the measures that will be included in that module, and that will also be described in this uh, document that I mentioned to the last questioner, is actually a surrogate measure for transmission, which is a, a, a an incidence measure that's based on a, a rate of clinical clinical cultures that 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 are positive for MRSA. Uh, And this particular measure has been validated, at least in the ICU setting in a multi-center study, to correlate very, very highly with actual measured transmission rates. Um, And so this is, for example, is one of the surrogate measures that um, is is fairly easy to collect or very easy to collect and produce and, in fact, could be automated uh, that might serve as a surrogate marker for, for how much transmission is occurring in your healthcare facility. The second question had to do with employees and screening of employees. Our recommendation uh, recommendations really de emphasize that and in fact don't really recommend looking for employee colonization unless there's existing epidemiologic evidence that links a particular employee to transmission of infection. If you think about that's a pretty high bar to meet and would require some some pretty significant epi investigation to, to determine to determine that criteria. So, we we generally don't recommend going there. I mean, one of the problems is, um, well, there are multiple limitations and multiple issues that come up. So our recommendation is not really to routinely screen employees, except in the in the uh, instance that I mentioned.
1: Thank you, Dr. Goodwin. Appreciate that and the
3: thorough answer, uh, Dr. Uh, Jernigan. You know, we
1: we have people coming in with cellulitis, uh, which obviously can't can't culture. People coming in with abscesses, which may not have a you know a an easy to uh, sort of uh, culture uh, component to it. In those folks, it's become our tendency to do nasal swabs just to check for MRSA, which may depend on your local epidemiology. Any thoughts on that that sort of surveillance, if you will?
3: Well, I think that um, you know there there are a lot of unanswered questions about the use of active surveillance, and um, many of the recommendations are are uh that 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 do go there talk about culturing high risk groups the definition of those high risk groups is something that that may vary from setting to setting and it needs some definition and that might be an example of a high risk group um, you know another another way to think about that is that if a patient does come in with an abscess for example that's likely to be caused by staph aureus um and we now know from data that, that many, you know, a great proportion of those uh, in this country are now caused by MRSA to assume that they're carrying um, MRSA or another staphylococcal, staphylococcal strain, even if it's not MRSA, that, that deserves to be contained and actually take extra precautions, such as contact precautions for those patients.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, the... the um when you think about MRSA, you tend to think start thinking about vancomycin. But in the inventory world, that's not really quite practical. We tend to guide our therapy based on uh, you know, sensitivities of the organism, which I'm assuming is appropriate. We tend to use end up using things like you know, Bactrim and clindamycin if they are sensitive. Any uh, are those the appropriate? Is that the appropriate direction to take?
3: Yeah, I think you know in this in this country in this study I was re, uh, referring to that I'll just refer to. Um, was a study that was actually performed in 2004 but was published last year looked at um, patients coming in with with abscesses in emergency rooms in 11 different cities around the country. And at that time, in 2004, 60% of all uh, of those abscesses, of purulent skin and soft tissue infections, were caused by MRSA. So I think in this day and time, if a patient comes to you with a, a skin or soft tissue infection that's suggestive of staph, or in which staff is in the differential diagnosis, you should cover them with therapy if they need antibiotic therapy. You should cover them with therapy that's, that's likely to have activity against methicillin-resistant staff. And uh, you mentioned two of the of the leading agents: trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole is being used with increasing frequency, as well as clindamycin. Um, and there are other. There are actually NIH is currently funding uh, some multicenter uh, randomized controlled trials to actually carefully evaluate the effectiveness of those agents since there's not a lot of clinical data, to be honest with you, in this setting. But but that is a, a, a very common clinical practice. I'd also uh, refer people to our website. Um, there is a, a document for management uh, for, for clinicians in managing skin and soft tissue infections that was sort of a, uh, a a, the result of a group of experts that we convened here at CDC that talked about this, and that goes over very carefully um, some of the thought presses on both diagnosis and management, as including antibiotic selection. So I'd encourage people to review that on our website as well.
2: This is Monina. Can I add something to that discussion? I think actually... One thing that's difficult, especially for clinicians to differentiate, is that one thing is what you need to do to arrive at a diagnosis and to most appropriately treat a patient. Surveillance is different than that. And sometimes there's overlap and sometimes there's not. And the surveillance case definitions need to be something that is easily applied, that is objective and uh, reproducible, and that can result in data that is actionable. So I think not at the individual level, but at the community level or at a subgroup level, whoever is doing this. So this comes up frequently in surveillance in general for healthcare-associated infections through, for example, what was NIS and now is the National Healthcare um, Safety Network because people want those two concepts to coincide, and they don't always. So one thing is the case definition for surveillance purposes, and the other is what do you need for appropriate clinical diagnosis and treatment and to make sure that those are very clearly different in people's minds.
0: Great. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right, Derek, next question. Our next question is from Cynthia Valerio from Valley Baptist Medical. Please go ahead.
2: We actually had a question regarding surveillance of employees, hospital employees, but that has already been addressed, so thank you.
0: Our next question is from Terrence Duke from 377th Medical Group. Please go ahead.
2: Hi. This is Dr. Milan Huen. I'm with Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. As you know, many of our military personnel are deployed overseas and also with the more interconnectedness of our world. Are there um, any evidence um, or do you have any data what are the prevalence overseas? Um, or is this a un- uniquely um, to the United States? And if not, um, is the CDC or World Health Organization doing surveillance uh, in countries other countries in the world, as you know, antibiotics use is not very well regulated in, say, developing world, especially in Asia. And I'll start, and then if John wants to add something. Um, In preparing this report, we looked at the literature from other countries, and the data that we collected barely, you know, is representative of the U.S. We had to age and race adjust. So that we could extrapolate to the U.S., the MRSA phenomenon seems to be very local, and I think the more data that are available at the local level, the better information there is to be able to do prevention. So, in some places, for example, you know, the incarcerated population is more. Uh, where the focus needs to be for prevention. In other places, you know, it might be uh, exclusively the long-term care community. These are things that are very local, so we certainly are unable to extrapolate from our data to other countries. But in reviewing the literature for the report, I found that there are other countries that are grappling with the same issue. For example, there's a system of mandatory reporting in the U.K., and they've been – um, monitoring this. I can't remember how long it's been going on, but they've been dealing with MRSA um, surveillance for a while, and they have some information that they subcategorize into regions and those kinds of things. Australia has also a body of literature. In Europe, especially in the area of healthcare associated, but starting also to talk about um, the influx of community associated MRSA, but this really varies. Uh, by country and within country, by region, by hospital. So this is something I think a lot of people are struggling with and that for sure we can't extrapolate any of our findings to other places.
1: Good, really good questions. appreciate that. All right. I think we're ready for the next question.
0: Our next question comes from Juan Dumas from All Children's Hospital. Please go ahead.
1: Hi, uh, yeah, I'm Juan Dumois at
0: All Children's Hospital
1: in St. Petersburg, Florida, and my question is for Dr. Clevins. Uh, Dr. Clevins, do you happen to know what proportion of the patients with healthcare-associated infections in your study had only prior MRSA infection as the defined risk factor?
2: This is such a coincidence that you ask that question because. I looked at the output before coming to this call, and we monitored this specific um, measure that you are asking about because we have these, you know, five criteria that we use to classify people as healthcare-associated right. onset, and have been monitoring who or how many of the cases, and are they different within who can meet each one of these single um, criteria? The answer is that most cases, about 78% of them have more than one of those um, risk factors, but specifically history of MRSA infection or colonization was reported in only 2.4%.
0: Thank you. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star, then one on your touchtone phone. Our next question is from Raymond Bixby from Solo Family Practice. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, this is uh, Raymond Bixby in Garland, Texas. Uh, My question is, for age-appropriate dual therapy, that is, uh, for instance, uh, trim sulfa and uh, doxy or trim sulfa clinda or trim sulfa rifampin, what uh, would be considered minimum duration of therapy so as not to... uh, uh, increased risk of further resistance.
3: Well, I'm not sure that we, you know. To be honest with you, whether either one of us is the best person to to, to answer that question, um, we're we're not. We're actually not the clinical experts. Um, I, what I would say is is that I think probably. Um, Nobody knows the exact answer to your question, and I, I alluded to one of the previous questioners that there's actually uh, plans for some randomized controlled trials to look specifically at at some of these agents, since they haven't been, many of them haven't been tested in large clinical trials against staph aureus skin and soft tissue infections, so we should have some data that might, might begin to get at that. Um, but I, I I don't have a good answer for you on that, and I'm sorry. It,
1: it's a it's a great question of of high pertinence, I think, to the you know ambulatory care physician, which you know is increasingly seeing folks with MRSA walking in the door, and and what is the right combination? Uh, if you need to use a combination, what's the right combination? Which obviously will in the duration, which obviously will be predicated on. Uh, the type of infection you're dealing with and the r- rapidity of the response to the uh to the regiment that you choose so really good question still a murky area and I still feel very uncomfortable every time we have a patient who uh who has an an abscess and maybe we don't culture the abscess but maybe we culture their nose and they have MRSA uh, colonization, uh, choosing the antibiotics, and really understanding what, what if we need to be using a combination medication or just using a, a single agent to see if they respond pretty quickly to that. So, good questions. Research is underway. Uh, more to follow. It sounds like. Uh,
3: I will say. I will say that that um, I think that probably for for patients who have frank abscesses, that incision and drainage is probably under underused in this country, and that I mean there is literature to suggest that for those. Um, that that are not too extensive and are not associated with with systemic symptoms, et cetera, and are and are relatively you know small. That sometimes incision and drainage incision and drainage alone uh, will be adequate. Um, if you don't incise and drain it, you know it, it may not be too surprising that with a uh, that you that you may need longer antibiotics. But I, that's not an excuse to that's not an argument for not draining it and giving antibiotics for longer. I think. Incision and drainage is a key intervention here that's probably um, underutilized.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I would agree with that. I think we do not infrequently get these sort of boggy lesions, which are abscess-like, where you really can't locate yeah. a clear pocket, and you get tired of sort of probing it. When the patient gets tired of you probing it with a needle to try to find that pocket of uh, of, uh, of pus. But it's a good point. Very good point.
3: I'll also maybe add to that, and uh, um, this maybe we commonly get the question about what about since these infections can be the, the community-associated MRSA skin and soft tissue infections uh, do tend to recur, and so the question is, what can you do to prevent recurrence? And uh, one question that's frequently asked is, um, what's the role of decolonization therapy? Um, and I, you know, the answer to that is we don't know yet. Uh, there, there, there is research underway. Uh, we actually are working in a collaborative cooperative agreement with um u c l a and Kaiser to uh try to do a study that looks at randomization of patients with community associated m r s a for eradication of colonization versus not and to find out if it has any impact on recurrence. We don't know um, so you know these these regimens may have a role in preventing recurrent infections, but more data are needed. Uh, to establish their efficacy and to identify optimal regins, regimens for use in community settings. I'll also say this, that after treating active infections, and um, uh, clinicians should really try to educate their patients on reinforcing hygiene and appropriate wound care uh, to prevent transmission in their households or other epidemiologic settings in which they may be in. And this may be as important in, prevent, in preventing recurrence as uh, any pharma- ph- pharmacologic intervention.
1: Yeah, great, uh, great issues to struggle with. We, we again routinely try to decolonize folks when we when we get a nasal culture for uh, uh, MRSA. We try to use muparisin and then try to prove, you know, a couple weeks after treatment that they're they're negative. And again, I don't know that that's the right thing to do, but it is what we're, what our current practice is at least here at, at Greenfield Health. All right. Uh, anybody else in the queue, Derek?
0: Our next question is from Jackie Croder from United Surgical. Please go ahead. Hi, I wonder if I can you hear me? We got you. Oh, great. Um, we're an outpatient surgical uh, facility, and uh, our our main question is uh, from a criteria basis. And uh, if a patient has been treated for a known MRSA. Um, is is their likelihood of getting a post op wound infection greater? And you know, what's your stance on on uh, patients with MRSA and outpatient surgery?
3: Well, these are, you guys are asking really great questions <laughs> and identifying areas where we need a lot more work. What we know is this: that patients who have have previous history of MRSA infection or colonization are at much higher risk for for uh, being a carrier at this time. So it's something to certainly consider. Uh, if a, if a patient's had a previous infection, that they may still be a carrier, and that's maybe a high risk group to screen if you are screening. But we also know that patients who are carry Staph aureus of any kind, whether it's MRSA or MSSA, uh, at the time of the surgery, are at increased risk for uh, Staph aureus infections uh, subsequently. Um, usually uh, the infecting strain ends up being the the endogenous strain that they were carrying uh, before the surgery. Um, Of course, that's one reason why we do perioperative antimicrobial prophylaxis. And one of the big unanswered questions is, uh, especially with an increasing proportion of infections being caused by MRSA, at least for some surgical groups, such as cardiac surgery and, and many orthopedic surgeries, you know, how should, how should that change what we do for antimicrobial prophylaxis? Should we routinely change to vancomycin? Um, or should we be treating those patients preoperatively uh, with mupirocin or some other regimen to try to eradicate or suppress colonization in the perioperative period? Um, I think that there are many centers around the country who, uh, if they believe that the patient's at risk for carrying MRSA will add vancomycin, uh, to their perioperative antimicrobial prophylactic regimen, although, to be honest with you, there are precious few data to, to support that practice. There are also uh, centers around the country that are screening these patients and routinely decolonizing them with mupircin, uh preoperatively. Again, that's one that's not well-supported in the literature and that we need more studies to do. I will say that there are some professional surgical uh, societies, such as, the, I think, the American college of thoracic surgery if if i'm correct actually for certain surgical groups such as cardiac surgery actually do recommend screening and eradicating colonization but but um it, it is a controversial practice so um sorry to be so waffly with you but it it's it's a it, it's a tough area
1: it is i think uh, worth going back uh dr clevens to the article and and uh just uh, re-examining the invasiveness of those ambulatory care-acquired uh, infections, which are concerning to us and which certainly have caused a lot of community consternation, but your data suggests that they're not the ones that people get into trouble with.
2: Are you saying sort of the mortality for each of those groups?
1: E- exactly, the, the invasiveness of community acquired MRSA.
2: Yeah, the rates certainly um, differ by those groups, but I think there's more that we can do in that area. Specifically, I think what needs to be done, and I don't know if anyone saw incidents in dialysis patients that we put out in an MMWR. Our um, EIS officer, Cynthia Lucero, did a very nice job. So that we could do that for each of these categories and try wherever there's a denominator to measure incidents in each of these groups so that there's an awareness especially for the providers of care for these different populations of what kind of you know incidents especially of these severe infections um the reason i think that that's important is i've heard a lot of uh, the community that deals with the long-term care uh, population thinks that MRSA is just endemic but not really causing a lot of severe infection. And so we've started to look at that. And, in fact, there is invasive infection in that population. But until we calculate specific incidence rates, I think that won't be as apparent.
3: I, and I don't know if your question um, had to do with with through community-associated MRSA, but, you know, just to put things in context, and it's probably worth mentioning, I mean, from other data sources, we believe that there are probably, you know, millions and millions of, of MRSA skin and soft tissue infections that affect uh, U.S. citizens every year. Um, that, in combination with the observations from this study, suggest that those very, very rarely become invasive. Um, and these data also suggest that even when they do, and I think this may have been the point you're alluding to, the mortality associated with invasive community-associated MRSA infections is much lower than the mortality associated with healthcare-associated MRSA infection. Now, part of that may be due to the population in which it happens. I mean, obviously, healthcare-associated people have lots of underlying illnesses and immunosuppressed, et cetera, and so forth. Melina's is going to add a comment here.
2: Yeah, actually, I think... What we reported was by syndrome mortality, not by population. And so if you look, all we presented, and this is why I'm saying I think we need to look at this group a little bit better. And the PIs were together here on Monday, and we talked about the need to understand this group by population a little bit better. Everybody that we've grouped in this healthcare-associated community onset, um, you know, right now is a big group that we haven't really refined so right. I think we need to look further at that. But when you look at the rates of invasive disease and of death, you know, they're higher than the other groups. So we need to tease it out. Higher than community-associated. Right. Right. right.
1: Well, really wonderful conversation. I have a feeling we could go on for quite a bit longer, but it is at the end of the hour, unfortunately. And uh, doc, both Dr. Clevins and Dr. Jernigan, I really want to uh, thank you for your participation. It's been delightful. Thank, th- thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks to the audience as well uh, for you coming back uh, month after month to join us in Author in the Call. As a reminder, uh, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, which is 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific Time. I feel compelled to put that in since I'm in the Pacific Time Zone. Our next discussion will take place on December 19th. The article, again, is Using Pedometers to Increase Physical Activity and Improve Health, Really delighted that Jem has chosen that article. It seems to me that we have far too many articles about cardiac stents and not nearly enough articles about how to increase physical activity and prevent cardiovascular illness in the first place. So delighted that we get to discuss that article on December, December 19th. Uh, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It is an interactive conference called designed to Accelerate Change that Can Improve Clinical Care. Thank each of thanks to each of you for being a part of Arthur in the room today and good day.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may all disconnect.